A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, I have a conversation with a really amazing indigenous healer. Arkan is a Peruvian ceremonial leader who was adopted by a Lakota elder named Basil Braveheart. He has written a couple books, one called The Time of the Black Jaguar, an offering of indigenous wisdom for the continuity of life on earth, and more recently, Deer and Thunder, indigenous ways of restoring the world. In this interview, we spend nearly two hours talking and we never get to the writing part. In fact, he agrees to do a part two at some point in the future. And one of the things you'll hear is that he is a very humble man. In fact, he's the only podcast guest I've had who, when I asked him to tell me who, how he describes himself, he says first as a farmer, I've never heard that before. Please take anything you hear in this interview with some caution, particularly some of the rituals and ceremonies that he talks about. Some of these things are potentially dangerous and it's not to be played with. There's a real concern there. So taking care for your safety, making sure that anything you might do along these lines is under the guidance of someone who has experience and is looking out for your well-being. I think you'll enjoy this conversation and take away something that will help you to live a more satisfying, deeper life than perhaps you've previously known. That's a big claim, but you know what? I think it's true. Arkan, welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm happy to be part of this. Yes, it's a true privilege for me to be able to talk with you this way. Thank you, Brian. You know, as I was reading your book, um, I realized that we have another friend in common, David Tucker, with the Pachamama Alliance. I went to the Amazon with him, and he was the first person who showed me around in the, in the rainforest, and it was a truly transformative experience as well. Yeah, David Tucker is a good friend of mine, and we uh, feel very aligned in our missions, uh, the way he sees the work that needs to be done uh, to improve the presence of humanity in this world. Uh, you know, we are pretty much uh, agreeing on on some of the things that need to be done or the the mind frame, the heart that we need to have in order to do our work. So, uh, yeah, I always have really good conversations with David, and I'm looking forward to this good conversation with you, Brian. Well, thank you. So, Arkan, tell me, if you will, please, what's life about? Mm. Well, from, from the perspective of uh, where I come from, from the Andean world, I was born in Arequipa in Peru, and now my, uh, you know, the indigenous culture that I'm most uh, 
identify where I do my ceremonies and my indigenous life is in the area of Cusco. And for all of us, since ancient times, the way we see ourselves is not only as inhabitants of the earth, we see ourselves without really making a big effort. This is part of our culture and our language. We see ourselves as members of the universe, members of the cosmos. Mm. So we know that we are children of the earth and we are also children of the cosmos. We are children of the stars and very particularly of the sun. And this is not just a belief system or a, you know, a religious thing because we don't really call our spiritual ways a religion. This is really based on, on the understanding of who we are and the wisdom of, you know, people who for thousands of years observed nature and observed their own nature, you know, who they are. So we, our body and a lot of what we are is the earth. We have water inside, we have minerals inside, we have the same that the mountains have inside. And we eat food that comes from the earth and water that comes from the earth. That is our nourishment and that's what we are, what we eat and what yeah. we drink. Yes. And then on the other hand, uh, we, we are always absorbing light from the sun. We are always receiving the light of the sun directly when the sun touches our skin, our eyes, and gives us its warmth or through the food that we eat also because all the greens absorb the light of the sun. And in that way, we are always receiving, if we, you want to use the, this word, uh, information from the universe through the light of the sun. So we are permanently being formed, informed and formed by the earth and the sun. And we become the product of, of that, of what comes from both of them. So, so that's how we see ourselves. You know, we see the world, the earth as part of the cosmos, and we see ourselves as part of the earth and the cosmos. And, and, the, and the most important, of course, is to, uh, to take the opportunity, you know, of having consciousness as we live in this, on this earth and this cosmos, the opportunity to take all that is given to us with consciousness, become aware of what is the gift, and live a beautiful life accordingly to all that is given to us and that is forming us. No, I love that perspective. And as I hear you say it, I think back to my time, even in grade school. And, you know, as we learned about the world and the United States and the different states within our own country here, I think about, you know, the debate that occurred. Are we federalists? You know, are we are we state first? Are you a Utah or are you an American? Are you a Californian or an American? And your discussion of, you know, the cosmos beyond you know, any other label we might apply to ourselves is one that's, I think, really beautiful. And I wonder what our world might be like if more of us held that perspective. What do you think? Yeah. Oh, yes. And, and you know, uh, there is an example of this. 
I'm sure there are many in the world, but uh, the one that I know better is where I come from. The the Inca people who were, it was not an empire, as it is still told officially in the books and everything. The, it was more of a confederation, a, a unity of different nations. Uh, they are... In the heart of the culture, one of the most important principles of the culture was to be aware that we are all equal, that we, no matter what nation you belong to, you know, or where were you born, that we are all in the same path. We are all, we all belong to the earth. We all belong to the cosmos, to the universe. And then uh, some of those very wise ancestors they insisted on people learning about that, that, you know, we we are all uh, capable of receiving the same guidance, information, and nourishment from the earth and the universe, no matter where we are. Mm. And or in the Andes, there was a time that actually lasted, a, you know, a long time, different periods, sometimes hundreds of years and sometimes even thousands of years where people had this mentality where it wasn't about, you know, I'm different than you because I belong to this nation and you belong to that one. You know, yes, we are different. And I, I love my culture and the way I dress and the way I speak. But in another level, I'm exactly the same you are. Therefore, we can cooperate. We can do things together. We don't have to be in war. I don't have to defend myself from you because we're the same. You know, there, this consciousness was really present, believe me, for a very long time in some parts of South America. And it for me, that is proof that it can be done. And actually, the times when the, it, that was the case were the best times. It was when, you know, there was less war, and more abundance for the well-being of all people, all humans, and all, and all life, you know? Because actually the truth is this mentality also extends to animals, plants, rocks, mountains, that they also, you know, have the same quality, the same capacity to receive light from the universe and develop themselves as we do. You know, that's not something that, I was taught in school about, you know, it's not an empire. It was a federation and, you know, the the nature of it and, and that. And I love to hear your view on that. And as I listen to you, one thing I wonder is if there's a perspective inherent in that worldview that leads to or inevitably means that it will be overtaken by a more aggressive culture where if it's so welcoming, if it's so open, if it's so inclusive, does that mean that it's inevitably subject to subjugation, domination, control, eradication? Or is there a way that that same spirit, which of course is still present on the earth and in many people today, but it doesn't seem to be the predominant one, is there a way that that what might be a more heart-centered way of living can still be strong enough to withstand any kind of aggressive or outside influence? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> it takes a lot of courage because, you know, the way, the way of protectionism and uh, the aggressive way 
it really comes from fear. You know, the people who uh, use that way, you know, they, of course they think they are right and they think that their values are correct and uh, they are not necessarily bad people, you know, but they, they are probably not aware that they are acting from fear. Yeah. The other way, the way that of, uh, you know, sharing instead of protecting so much, it takes a lot of courage, but it doesn't only take courage. It takes a certain development, you know, in order to have an influence on other people in a peaceful way, these people have to respect you. Yeah. And in order for them to respect you, you have to be a well-developed human being. They won't respect you if you are trying to teach something that you don't practice or if you are trying to uh, speak about a a human quality that you don't really have. Yeah. You know, you have to, or we have to, as those of us who who want this peaceful culture, we have a big responsibility and we have to really polish ourselves and develop ourselves in a big extent in order to be able to do that. And uh, let me give you an example. <clears throat> Is it okay if I take a little time to speak about one of our ancient cultures? And uh, yes, please do. Yeah. Well, in uh, in Peru, and actually very close to where I grew up, part of my childhood, uh, they discovered 24 years ago what now is considered the second oldest civilization in the world. It's called Caral. C-A-R-A-L, Caral. Hmm. It is uh, the second oldest in the world. First is Mesopotamia, then is Caral, then is Egypt. So this civilization lasted at least 2,000 years. There is proof of that. Of course, there is a lot of studies being made by scientists, archaeologists. Uh, 2,000 years. They had seven permanent fires lit for 2,000 years. Hmm. And they used these fires to make offerings for 2,000 years. Their main dedication was to offer nourishment as a reciprocity, as a form of gratitude to the universe and to the earth for all that they received. So kind of their main occupation was to nourish in a sacred way, with a high vibration, with a high quality of energy through ceremony to nourish that which nourished them and in that way keep the beautiful, high quality world alive. That was the main dedication for 2,000 years. What kinds of things? So if I understand what you're saying, you said that this civilization, Kerala, uh, had seven fires burning continuously for 2,000 years, and they'd use those to offer gratitude, what kinds of things would they would they burn in the fires? Or do you have an idea of what those rituals were like? Yeah, because we still have them. You know, Caral, uh, uh, more and more the, the people who study these things are coming to the conclusion, uh, they are still studying it, but they, many of them are already coming to the conclusion that Caral uh, really was like a mother culture in South America. And even the Inca culture that happened, you know, like 5,000 years after, 
caral has many, many aspects of, of the culture that are recognized already as being born in Caral. Hmm. And one of them, which we still have, and actually I use in my work, is that making of offerings. So now, of course, we do it in a different way because after the conquest, we had to learn to make our offerings, not in temples, but anywhere we were, sometimes hiding in mountains or caves, but we have never stopped doing them. Uh, so the offerings pretty much consist on preparing uh, a design on on top of uh, could be a, a piece of cloth or a piece of paper nowadays with flowers, coca leaves, sweets, uh, corn, you know, uh, different kinds of seeds, and prepare a beautiful design that actually, because of the way we place things, it has a meaning, it has a balance, it has, you know, a, a power because of how it is designed. But it is made only with these elements that I just described. And then that prayer, that design with these elements is placed on the fire, mm. is burned. And all the prayers and the beauty and the vibration and the heart that was placed in that piece of cloth or paper when that design was made, when it is placed in the fire, it becomes smoke. And that, that smoke, is it goes everywhere. It goes to its destination, the destination that was named when we did the prayers. So that smoke carries the prayer, carries the vibration, the heart, the love, the gratitude, and that energy penetrates its destination. It penetrates the mountains, it penetrates the trees, it penetrates the land, it penetrates, it can go all the way to the sun because it's energy. Mm. You know, uh, I have spoken about this with a quantum physics scientist, and he told me that scientifically speaking, what I, what we do is possible. It's really, it's not a religion, it's not just a belief system. It is possible to do these things. And as you well know, the Tibetans do the same. There are many ancient cultures that do the same. So the, when, when the archaeologists studied those fireplaces in Karal, they went down, you know, uh, uh, excavating and looking for organic matter, and they have proven that for 2,000 years, people were putting these offerings in those fires all the time. Hmm. There is evidence. I, don't, I cannot tell you right now exactly what are the elements they used in Caral, but there were some fruits, uh, I think some fish they used there because it's very close to the ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are fish scales, I think they found there. Uh, you know, but pretty much things that we eat, you know, we give for the earth to eat. Yeah. But but charged with our prayers, which is different. Right. You know, one thing is uh, a fish or uh, an apple, or, you know, uh, some some something that we eat as it comes from the tree. And another thing is when it is charged with our prayers, with our celebration, with our gratitude. 
it is enhanced, it has a different type of energy, and that's wh what we give back. We give back what we were given, but enhanced and charged with a, a much higher vibration, and we offer it to the sources of our own nourishment. That is what, for us, pretty much defines what it is to be a human being. A human being in our culture is someone who takes responsibility for nourishing, nourishing the earth and the universe and making it even more beautiful than it was when it was given to us. Wow. So that's inherent in the very definition or idea of what it is to be a human being in your culture is to nourish. Yes. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. I, a... I, I could not consider myself a real human being if I wouldn't do that, you know, because let's put it this way. Every form of life has a mission. An apple tree gives apples. Uh, a bear, you know, has a, a certain a place and mission in the ecosystem of the mountain where he or she lives, the the fish, the salmon, the the insects, everyone has a mission that is part of the balance of all life. You know, so what is the mission of a human being? What if we when we really place ourselves as part of nature, what is our mission? You know, well, our mission is in our talent. Our talent is what tells us what our mission is. We have an amazing talent to do art, to transform the things that we receive and, and enhance them into a much higher, much refined, beautiful, powerful frequency of vibration that is delightful to all the other forms of life, to the earth itself, to all of creation. And, and those vibrations, those creations of us humans, they have a nourishing capacity. They they feed life. They feed the quality of uh, the earth and the universe. And doing that is really uh, anyone who does that. You know, even a musician, an artist, uh, someone who takes care of a garden. All of us who do these things, we know that doing that we discover ourselves. While doing that, we find out our talent, we find out who that we can do that and who we are. And it is uh, it is really fulfilling, you know, to arrive to that awareness. Yeah, I, I think that's such a wonderful perspective and a very empowering one. Um, and there's a line in the last chapter of your second book, Deer and Thunder, where you write, a human being becomes nature doing the work of nature. And I, w I was really impressed by that. And it sounds like, um, you know, clearly that's something that's available to each of us, but not all of us maybe realize it or certainly pursue it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that also answers one of your previous questions. When, when we have that level of awareness of who we really are, then, you know, how to be in the world and how to relate to people of other nations it's not a political decision. It's not an intellectual, necessarily, uh, an intellectual decision. It is It is natural. You know, we, we are guided by our instinct, by, you know, by, by this heart and mind that we have that is part of the heart and mind of the earth and the universe. So it, it becomes kind of common sense, you know. 
I don't think the people of Caral or the Inca people who, you know, didn't have war. Uh, well, the Inca people did have war, but the Caral people didn't for 2,000 years and find really good ways of having good relationships with other nations. I don't think it took them, you know, a lot of political training. They, it was more uh, instinctual in some way. They knew it. They yeah. they were guided by the light they carried within themselves. They, they just were being themselves. Yeah. You know? It was a natural wisdom, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And um, in some ways, I think that's been forgotten or maybe never learned. Uh, but yet I have the sense that it is somehow innate to all of us. So how can we forget something that's already in us, but maybe it requires an awakening or a return you know, to something which is part of why I'm so fascinated by by you and your work and your teachings. Um, when I met you, I didn't really know what to expect. And, you know, anyone that Lynn says, hey, you'll, you know, trust me, you'll, you're going to like this person, you're going to like this experience. You know, I went along with it. And when we were together, well, I, I do want to get to this, but before we do, I want, I know we've been talking for about a half hour, almost about a half hour. And I haven't asked you yet to share a little bit about who you are. People have heard this voice, you know, speaking and they'll have heard my intro setting this up, but I'd love to hear from your own voice. When someone asks you who you are or what you do, how do you describe yourself when you talk to someone? I realize that might change from person to person or situation to situation, but how do you typically uh, introduce yourself in the, in the times that you do? Well, that's a that's a hard one because you know in our in our cultures uh, we uh, in order to do the things that we do we understand that we need to stay as humble as we can you know the the capacity to do our work really requires that we always uh, stay humble. You know, when we make a big deal about ourselves, then we think, we end up thinking that the power to do what we do comes from us. And, uh, you know, so no matter how young or old we are, we have to always, you know, be careful to, uh, you know, to not have too much grandiosity about how we define ourselves. So I'm just a humble man. I'm just a, I'm a farmer. I'm a father. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. And uh, and for some reason, uh, when since I was little, I had the inclination to to do the ceremonial work, to prepare the offerings, to lead the prayers and the ceremonies. Uh, I was born with that with that inclination and that capacity. So uh, it led me to uh, find people older than me, teachers and elders, who uh, who told me that I could learn what they knew, and and they taught me some things that you know uh, make it possible for me to sometimes help people when they are sick or when they are confused. Uh, that's you know more individual type of work, which sometimes I do, but. Nowadays, uh, in the last 10 years or so, 
I do more of the bigger ceremonies oriented to uh, to the healing of all that has been damaged on the earth. And also uh, now uh, my elders tell me that I need to share all what I have learned. So that sometimes puts me in a position of someone who who teaches, you know. Yeah. But it's hard to call myself a teacher because I'm also learning. So, and I still have teachers. So it's just a role that sometimes I play. Uh, sometimes I play the role of ceremonial leader. I lead the ceremonies. My elders entrusted me with. Uh, they gave me the authorization and the bundles. The you know the altars, the elements that someone needs in order to uh, have the authority to lead ceremony for communities and and people. So so I do that. You know I I do those things. That's my work. When I met you, Arkan, one of the things that made an impression on me was that well, there's a whole bunch, but one is I was really I was really struck by one thing you said just at a lunch we were having together where you shared very quietly that in the Western culture or the Northern culture, depending on how you call it, uh, in our society, very often we have a tendency to speak from a place of intellect, a place of knowledge. We're sharing, our conversation is a share of, of, from the mind, but not always, or maybe not so much from the heart. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that because I've looked at the intention behind things I do, you know, from how I brush my teeth and how I eat and how I talk to another person. And I find, you know, very often I am looking at how can I use this information? How can I, you know, optimize or maximize the benefit from this situation, this interaction, you know, something like that. And and it really invited me to slow down and, and investigate my intention in my connection with other people and with things. Will you talk to me a little bit about that? We, we are really in big trouble. Humanity is in trouble. And, and it's going to require a lot of wisdom and an alignment of the wisdom of many people to get ourselves out of this very difficult situation. It's going to take, uh, if you want to call it that way, impeccability. We got to be impeccable. Mm. We, we have to close all of our leaks. Mm-hmm. As, serve, as people who serve, as, as uh, you know, uh, spiritual warriors, if you want to call it that way, as servants of humanity, you know, it's going to take really the best of ourselves, the best of the best leaders in the world to get us out of this very dangerous situation we are as humanity. So I feel responsibility around that. That's I need to stay humble in order to do the best I can do. And I myself, you know, I am in the same danger of this than everyone else is. So I have to always watch for how, you know, I, I can uh, go in the wrong direction, you know. And the wrong direction would be to make myself bigger than the teachings, mm. to make myself more important than the instructions that come from the earth, the sun, the universe, the ancient wisdom of humanity, of the ancient people who were really wise. I cannot make myself bigger than that. Because if I do, 
then I, I can't surf well. Then I would be busy, you know, uh, you know, keeping that image for myself and for others. And that's a lot of work. You know, I, I don't want to do that. I, I prefer to, to just stay humble and, and keep learning and not be tied to an image where I have to always be the one who knows everything or the one that people looks at for, for wisdom. I prefer to encourage actually every human being to find their own wisdom mm. because we need lots of human beings to wake up and have the same wisdom so we can make a big team of wise people and find the solutions to our problems. Unfortunately, in, in modern culture, there is a, certain personalities are, are being uh, followed and seen as special and important. And that is a distraction. That doesn't support necessarily the, the awakening, the collective awakening. You know, that people rely on other people for their wisdom or that people compensate for their shortcomings and their lack of, of development by making, you know, by having someone important that has that development in, in uh, you know, up there in, in a monument, <laughs> you know, and say, this is the, you know, I follow this one. No, I mean, I, my wish is that every human being takes responsibility for their own development. Yeah. You know, I'm not special. I'm not better than anyone. I just did my work. Yeah. And, and still have a lot of work to do, you know. Do you mind if I read, there's a, a, about a paragraph in your book that I, that I think speaks to this. Yeah. So you say, and this is now in the time of the Black Jaguar, you write... Those who instructed me didn't try to educate me. They left me alone on a hill. They gave me medicine. They played tricks on my ego. And mostly, they touched my heart, my little heart, with their big hearts. When I was ready to learn something, they put me in situations where they knew I would learn by myself. More than being an authority superior to my own will, they made everything possible to assist me in my awakening. They never interfered with the destiny that I was forging for myself. Mm -hmm. That's that's. That's pretty different from the way the, you know, the industrialized world educates people. It's not, it's uh there's nothing like the way I was, I was educated. But I think, again, that's part of what really um, draws me to you and, and your work is that I, I feel, you know, that's not something I've had and it, that it could help me develop and round out as a human being where I've spent a lot of years studying Asian culture, Asian thought you know, Western, rational, empirical, you know, psychologically and scientific informed traditions, personal growth, you know, these other things. But when we were together, I thought, you know, despite having grown up here in the Rocky Mountains and having the right in my own backyard, forests and lakes and, you know, a lot of beauty, I have not learned from nature. I'm sure I haven't learned. And one of the things that you said when we were there, and I think it came up from something as simple as the insects out in the desert where we were with you. And you said to uh, one of the participants who was like shooing this fly away, like, don't, don't fear nature. Will you talk a little bit more? I mean, it, I tend to think, oh, nature can be scary. It's, you know, it's big, it's powerful. It's un, it's mysterious. 
you know, and, and then here you are saying, no, like, don't fear nature. Will you talk a little bit more about the thinking behind that? Thank you so much. That's a beautiful question. Uh, you know, there is so, uh, amongst uh, the big amount of people uh, seeking to uh, help and, and uh, make sure that the earth doesn't, uh, is not destroyed by human activities and and people who want to uh, protect and take care of the earth, there's a lot of people who are afraid of uh, of insects and snakes and this and that. So that is a contradiction, you know. Um, don't be afraid of the earth. You know, if all those snakes and insects and and cold and winds and storms and all of that is the earth. Yeah. You know, so we cannot have a good relationship with something that we are afraid of. Mm. We can't, you know. So uh, we can have respect and we can have uh, the awareness that what is in front of us is really powerful and have respect and be careful and have uh, some caution in some cases, but not fear. You know, not fear. It's, it's very difficult to have a good relationship with someone that we are afraid of. And all those elements that people are afraid of are the earth. Yeah. The snake is the earth. The mountain is the earth. The wind is the earth. So where is the, the wisdom for us to do our work going to come from? Yeah. You know, who is the, the wisest entity on this earth that can tell us how to bring the environment back to a, to a state of balance. The one who knows that more than anyone is the earth herself. Hmm. Yeah. This may be weird for, you know, in, in Western culture, maybe not for everyone, for some scientists actually it's not weird what I'm gonna say, but for indigenous people it's natural. You know, we can have communication with the earth. There are ways in which we can read what the earth is trying to tell us. We can learn directly from her. She can guide us. She is the, the, the wisest scientist and, form, and, and source of information for us to find the solutions is the earth herself. But how can we find how can we uh, keep open that channel of communication with the earth when we mistrust her, when she think, when we think she's going to hurt us, yeah. when, when we think that she's mean, <laughs> you know? So we, we know that, you know, there are dangers that we have to learn how to live on earth and be careful, but that doesn't mean the earth wants to hurt us. That means... When something like that happens, it means we we didn't have the wisdom, we were not careful, or we were not listening, you know, to the to the signs that were telling us to be careful, you know. So your question is very important, Brian. Thank you for asking that. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that you know, I, I'm not telling people, hey, you know, go play with the rattlesnakes. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta be careful if you are in front of a rattlesnake, but don't hate rattlesnakes. And don't don't kill them if you see one. 
just be careful. Just don't step on them. Don't touch them. And, you know, and if you see one, say hello. You know, it's be- you are so beautiful and walk away. Yeah. Don't respect her environment and also find find out what is the wisdom of rattlesnakes and what, don't make them your enemy because they are not. What about mosquitoes, though? <laughs> <laughs> like, Those are really, very difficult to be friends with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but, yeah, they also play a role, you know. They, they give me a hard time and I, I have to be very patient, you know. It's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, one one thing I, I wanted to say is how do you offer what you have to offer in a way that doesn't puff yourself up or make you seem, you know, maybe more important than you really are? I'm willing to uh, to do this work uh, to, to give a message to really good people like you. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful, you know, for this interview and the opportunity to uh, touch people that I don't know. I don't know who's going to listen to these words. And, and still I know they are my brothers and my sisters. And I'm I'm glad that through this uh, interview, some people are going to hear some things that I hope are helpful. Yeah. Also, the books I write also seek that. It's, it's a matter of balance. You know, it, it's a matter of balance. What I'm careful with is with... Uh, with it becoming too big. Yeah. If it becomes too big or it is absorbed by the modern culture that makes people famous or that makes it too commercial, if I am if I am absorbed by that, I can lose you know, I can lose what uh what is precious to me. Because if I lose it then I have nothing to give, you know. Right. I, I can give an example from nature. Uh, Let's say there is this tree, this big tree that has a lot of uh, avocados, you know. And, and you know, the best that can happen is that some people come and take some avocados and, and the seeds, you know, go over to other places where new avocados grow as big as that one. And there is a lot of avocado trees, you know. Yeah. That, that's great. But if, you know, if you make a big deal about one tree, and there, and you know, lots of people come to that one tree and eat all the avocados of that tree. That tree is going to be famous for a while. It's going to get a lot of uh, attention for a while, and then it's, it's going to be done. It's going to be wasted. Yeah. You see, so you know, I, I, it doesn't seem to be a wise uh, approach. You know. Yeah. I, I don't want to do that. Yeah. You know, oh. and also. Well, it's, it's related to what I told you before. Uh, I, I do believe that everybody can learn, everybody can receive the, that the same wisdom I received. But that takes a lot of work. You know, I don't really think that someone hears one phrase that I wrote in my book or that I something I said, and because of that, they already know. Right. In order to really learn... People have to practice. People have to do the work, you know. So, you know, I don't want it. I don't want to make it just about that, where you know people hear some things that I said that I learned from my teachers and or that I was instructed through a ceremony by the earth or the sun, 
And that they just think that because they hear that sentence or, or, or this uh, teaching, that they already know. That can be misleading. That is not true. Yeah. You know, and in the modern world that is very intellectual, there is the, the big danger that people think that they know something because their intellectual mind knows it. Right. I don't think that's true. You have to completely embody the teaching. The teaching has to live in our heart, mind, body, and spirit in order to really have completely landed in ourselves so we may be able to have that teaching be the foundation of our actions and our words. You know, if we have not really embodied the teaching completely in ourselves, if it's not carried by the water and the light that lives within our body, you know, it's, it's just in our head. Yeah. That is one of the problems of the modern world. A lot of teachings are just in the head. And, and you know, we can spend hours and hours and hours talking from our head without really having the capacity to create change. Yeah. To create change, we need to have an inner power, an inner sacred power, a, a real ability and capacity to move things, to transform things, like the sun does it, like the earth does it, like any natural sacred power does it. You know, so it has to go way beyond our head. Yeah. You know, so I, I can, you know, if I spend most of my time, you know, uh, just talking, you know, of course, you know, it's going to inspire people and, uh, and, and it may be, and it may lead some people to look for the practices mm-hmm. and to go do what is required in order to develop themselves. I understand that. I, I'm sure that some people listening to this interview will do that. You know, but I also have to do my ceremonies. I also have to have a small community of people where I can really have a, a direct relationship with some of my relatives and especially younger people that can learn. But, you know, a teacher who has 1,000 uh people learning from him or her, it's not going to be able to really teach them well. Ten, I can, you know, help really well. A thousand, I can't, Mm. you know. It's better to have a thousand teachers, you know, that each one of them has ten people learning from them than have one teacher that has a million students. You know, that, you know, yes, it's just a practical thing, you know. And why I prefer that, because I really care. You know, I really care, not for, for whatever is good for me personally. It's what's necessary. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to get out of this trouble unless we have millions of people remembering the original wisdom of humanity. I, I think you're right. And, and at the same time, I mean, of what you're saying about we, we won't get out of the trouble we're in unless we have, you know, millions of people having this collective awakening that you've described. And at the same time, with respect, I push, and I know I invited you to share your perspective, but I, I would just challenge you a little bit on, on what you're saying, where I love, you're talking about working with small groups. And I mean, I think about me personally with anyone that I want to learn from, if, if that teacher holds that perspective, that's a privilege to be one of those few. And at the same time, I do think there are some teachers today 
some leaders who are effectively leveraging technology and organization with a certain intention, who are helping to transmit an, uh, almost an energy or that intention, even though it's at a larger scale. And and I say that, I mean, the one who comes to mind most is someone I don't know if you know, um, is a guy named Sadhguru that I've been learning from for about the last year and a half. And over 40 years, he's built a, a, a massive volunteer organization here in America and in India and around the world. But it's interesting to me to see him because I've never seen a teacher who I believe has done what you're saying about embodied the, the teachings in heart, mind, body, and spirit, and then been able to scale that in a way that I don't think was possible. Well, it might have been possible, but I don't know how we would have done it without modern technology. And I, I just, uh, I, I'm not suggesting you're wrong necessarily, just, um, and I know everyone has their own style and preference, but um, I think maybe there is something, um, something more possible. But what do you think? Well, no, for sure, uh, that's, it's excellent that someone can do that. You know, I admire people that can do that. Uh, and, that, you know, the universe and the earth can work in, a, in many different ways. And there are many different types of talents and medicines that different people carry. So, you know, bottom line, I can say, you know, that's not my way. You know, that's sure. not. Sure, sure. If someone can do that and do it well and do it uh, in a way that really goes deep and really transforms people and really gives people the tools for, for a deep transformation and arriving to the, having the wisdom and the power to make the earth and humanity better, mm-hmm. respects, big respect for people like that. Yeah. that you know, that that's not me. I don't... You cannot ask uh, an apple tree to give you uh, pears, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not my way. I I could not feel in in my you know environment and my my own medicine doing something like that. Yeah. But I do admire people who can do it for sure. No, oh. okay. So we're we're about an hour in, and I haven't even yet asked you to talk a little bit about your books. Um, but I want to I want to turn to that now by asking. With with and maybe the answer is different for the two different books. Um, but who? So this first one, I'll I'll read the title: "The Time of the Black Jaguar: An Offering of Indigenous Wisdom for the Continuity of Life on Earth." And the second book that was recent, more recently released, "Deer and Thunder: Indigenous Ways of Restoring the World." Will you tell me who did you write these books for, and what did you want the books to do for them? Yeah, uh, there is. You know, throughout the years, uh, mostly since I moved from Peru to the United States to New Mexico, I uh, I do ceremonies and I also do teachings. I go to places where people invite me. I meet people from, like you, you know, who are also doing their work in the world people of different organizations, people making different efforts. And uh, this is actually tied to uh, to our previous conversation. Uh, and, and please, uh, I, I'm not really making any judgment here. It's just uh, something that I learned in my own experience is that there are so many talented people 
really, really good people that are willing to put time and effort into this mission that sometimes uh, do not have the full understanding of how they can increase their sacred personal power, their sacred inner talent, which can really, really help them do their work better. You know, there are some efforts that really uh, create powerful consequences, and there is a lot of efforts that don't. And because we're in a crisis, we need most of the efforts <laughs> to really make a difference. You see, so my, my perspective is, you know, what if these really good people who are making an effort, you know, receive some of the gifts that I received from, from the ancient wisdom, from the elders of the indigenous cultures, from the connection to the spirit world the connection to the spiritual guides that are really gifted and that can help us do our work better. You know, what if those people really remember, not even learn, but remember that you can have allies in the, in the, in the world that are mountains, that are rivers, that are, you know, powerful sources of energy and light that can really help them do their work, you know? And I realized that's a different mind frame. That's a different way of seeing things. That's a different methodology. The methodology of people who go to college and school, and again, please understand, I'm not judging that methodology. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's missing something, mm. you know? In, in the methodology of the... You know, that we are taught in school and college, we are not taught to make direct connections with the powers of nature in the universe. We are only taught to see them from the distance and study them. We are not taught to make a relationship with them. Some people don't even believe or have in their mind the, the, the understanding that that is possible, you know? So in my books and, and the teachings that I give, I, uh, what I try to do is to offer what I was offered, which is the possibility to claim our inheritance. You know, our, what, the inheritance that we all can claim that comes from the ancient people, very ancient people before humanity became highly intellectual, and anthropocentric. You know, there was a time in the ancient times where humanity, where the world was not anthropocentric, where not everything was run by humans, and actually humans were humble enough to listen yeah. and be guided. You know, that has been lost. And that is something so, that's a huge, huge loss. When we humans think that the intelligence to resolve a problem only comes from humans, you know, we are handicapped. Yeah. The, the intelligence doesn't become only from humans. The intelligence comes 
from the earth itself, from this, from the spirit world, from the universe. There is so much intelligence in the universe that we can access if we know how to, if we are humble enough, if we know how to listen. But that is another mind frame. That's another methodology. That's another way of being humans that requires, you know, certain skills that we indigenous people develop in ceremony. In ceremony, we get out of our head and we listen and we feel with our heart. We receive, we remember in our heart things that are way wiser than what we learned in school or what we read in the book. Yeah. You know, that, of course, I, I totally understand it is a very valid choice, you know. Some people say, well, I'm not interested in that. I love human intelligence and that's what I want to pursue. I say that's fine, you know. Everybody can choose whatever they feel more attracted to. But the reason why I wrote my books is because I know that there are many people, and you may be one of them, Brian, because you you have said many times that you were touched by what you experienced when we met. Yep. There are many, many people who who feel that something is missing in their work, that they are having some progress, but maybe not as much as they would like to. You know, so what I have reflected on, what if what is missing is the ancient wisdom of humanity. What if what is missing is indigenous methodology? You know, a, a different way. You know, Albert Einstein said, we cannot solve a problem with the same tools that created the problem. Yeah. I, that really struck me. You know, I said, well, what, what if uh, there is a lot of people trying to resolve the problems created by the modern world with the same tools of the modern world? Is that going to work? <laughs> I think we're seeing the answer to that question right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and really, don't take me wrong. I'm not about this regarding technology or the tools of the modern world. You know, some of them are, we are using them right now, you and I, and they are being useful and they may help people. So I, I don't, I'm not against them, you know, but. There may be a problem if that's the only thing we use. Yeah. There may be a problem if we think that this technological development and this intelligence of human that that humanity has reached in this uh, in this time is really what's going to take us out of the crisis we are in. You know. I don't know, but my feel, I feel that the answer is no. I, it doesn't seem to be happening. You know, look, look what's going on. I mean, we should have resolved the crisis of the environment 10, 20 years ago. And I think I think that's one of the ways that people keep themselves from taking action is they're just thinking, oh, you know, technology – or our evolving consciousness or the government or something will will ultimately save us. Yeah, things are crappy now, but they're all going to be fine. <laughs> and then they don't embrace their personal power or what you're talking about, developing their own sacred talents. They just sit on the sidelines. Exactly right. That's what I was trying to say, Brian. You said it more clear than me. <laughs> Arkan, how many languages do you speak? 
Well, I speak uh, Quechua, I speak Spanish, I speak English, and uh, and then I speak Italian and Portuguese, but not so well, you know. Ah, amazing. And then I a little bit of Lakota, but no, you know, just when I go to Pine Ridge to my relatives in South Dakota, uh, you know, I understand the prayers, I understand some things, I can sing the Lakota songs in ceremony and know what they mean, but you know, yeah. I can't say I speak Lakota <laughs> very little. No, that's it's. Uh, so one thing I want to ask you, you were talking about just a, a few minutes ago, talking about through ceremony, how we can learn or maybe remember something. And uh, you told me an experience about a young man who participated, I believe, in a vision quest. I don't know if it was a vision quest or maybe a Sundance with you who a- afterwards came back and wanted to drink a Coca-Cola. Will you tell me a little – will you tell those, you know, me and those people listening – that story and and what that was like for you uh which one in particular can you remind me a little bit of the context yeah so you shared something about someone who had come to you from outside and wanted to learn something or have a certain experience and did and then at the conclusion of it as you were riding back in the truck asked you to pull over yeah well we this this guy uh he was he did a four days vision quest four days with no food and water and I can't, you know, get him from the mountain. We go to the sweat lodge. I hear his prayer and it was beautiful prayer. He had remembered a lot of wisdom being alone with nature and with spirit. He, uh, I was, I learned from what he said. It was beautiful. A lot of wisdom came from this uh, young man. And I was, I was very happy to hear that. And, you know, I I felt, I saw myself in him because I had those experiences and I felt this is a turning point in his life. You know, he, if he pursues this wisdom and he doesn't forget what he received when he was on the hill, you know, he, he's going to be a leader. He's going to be a, this man is going to go far. So then when we uh, come down from our, ceremonial grounds to uh, the valley where we, you know, uh, have our kitchen and our showers and stuff. We, you know, like going back to, uh, you know, to uh, away from nature, closer to the comforts of of our homes. Mm-hmm. He wanted me to stop. He asked me to stop in a gas station to buy a drink. And I said, well, you had water. No, no, he said, I have been dreaming with uh, with having a cold drink. I said, well, it's your choice. You know, I stopped, and he went in, and he came back with a Coca-Cola, with a cold Coca-Cola in his hands. And uh, and he started drinking it, and, and you know, I, I felt pretty sad because uh, I knew that that, that was, that was going to turn it off, you know, mm-hmm. that he... He needed to, it has happened to many people actually in different ways, you know. He couldn't stay in that state that was far from his comfort zone, far from what was familiar to him, far from what his humanness was caught on in this world, you know, 
when you do, when you have very sacred, powerful experiences, you go away from that. You you kind of start seeing yourself differently. But sometimes your identification with your humanness and what you and your membership in the simple human world, you know, wants to pull you back. Yeah. Hey, you know, you cannot be that sacred being. You cannot be that guy that is connected to the spirit world. You're going to come back to us and be as one of us. So why don't you have a Coca-Cola and get over with it? <laughs> yeah. And, and you told me that he said, after drinking the Coke, he said, ah, I feel like my old self again. Oh, that's right. Exactly. That's right. That's, yeah, that's, that's the most revealing. Yeah. He said that. And, and what a shift, right? Because it's not what he thought was his old self was perhaps not his old self, but he had achieved a connection in some way with his old self on the hill four days with no food or water with an intention and some prayer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that that's what I was talking about before, you know, thank you for, for bringing that up. Uh, you know, my question to, to all those who are listening is how far are you willing to go? You know, how, how far are you willing to go in, into your real self, into, I, I'm, I'm not, and really, I'm not saying do very extreme things and put your life in danger and and do crazy things. No, I mean, in, go to people who know how to build a safe container for you through meditation or ceremony or vision quest, whatever. Where you know people who have the experience doing those things that can create a container for you to be in silence for a long time, to be fasting, to be you know, able to really go out of your head and deep into your deep self that is part of the earth and the universe and really discover who you really are. And and then when I ask how far are you willing to go with it, do you want to do that for four days only? Or you want to do it for 10 days? Do you want to be who you really are just for a month? Mm. No, or do you really, really want to be that and stay like that? Yeah. Uh, uh, Time, I have to be honest, there is a time when people who do that do have a conflict between the the real self that is awakening and their human part. You know, they don't speak the same language. They don't want the same things. There is a conflict. It is difficult. And that's why when we go through that conflict, we need teachers, we need mentors, we need practices, we need a container that can help us go through that. And then one day, everyone can arrive to a place where the human self is still there, the human self is it has its shortcomings, it has its human appetites, it has all that a human has, and I'm not saying get rid of that or make it wrong or, you know, or crush it. No, not at all. We got to love ourselves and all that we are. But what changes is that that human self with all its, its appetites and ignorance and shortcomings is no longer the ruler. Mm-hmm. It's no longer the one who runs our actions. We have arrived to a place 
where our real self, the light of our spirit, the part of us that is keen to the earth and the universe, has grown, has grown big enough to be the ruler, to be the one who decides what yeah. we say, what we do, how we do it. And, and yes, we still will be human. We still make mistakes, but not as much as before, you know. And, and of course, that, that, that higher self will have compassion on the mistakes of our humans and the mistakes of its own human self and, and not be a tyrant and not be, uh, you know, rigid and, and stay humble and always learn. Because the truth is, if you arrive to that point and you can be connected to your higher self, then you know how small you are. Yeah. You, know, you know that the big stars out there and that the earth has so many sacred people, you know, and that you are just one more, you know, and then you keep listening, you keep learning, you keep paying attention, and, you know, but something has changed. What has changed is when you really need wisdom, you know how to access it. Mm. You know what is the place within you that you need to go to in order to access the best wisdom, the highest light you can, you, you can make use of when you really want to do something good for someone else, for the earth, for humanity. That's what changes, that now you have quick access to that, that you don't have to you know, take a long time to get to that. It's right there. You have cultivated a relationship with that part of yourself. You just walk a step and you are there anytime you want. That is a treasure, and that is a treasure that any person trying to do good for humanity and the earth could have. Yeah. And, and in my opinion, sorry for saying it like that, but I think should have, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Because that, that's the biggest resource, you know? Yeah. Our own wisdom and the access to it. No. Oh. It, it's, really, it's really amazing to, for me to hear you speak about it that way. Because I think that's what I personally have been looking for and I think a lot of people have been looking for for a long time in that sense you mentioned that so many people in their work or just in their lives overall feel that something's missing. And when we say something's missing, it implies that it's possible or it's available and all that all there is to do is to find it and to integrate it. And when in your in your book you make this mention you say very difficult ceremonies like fasting alone on a hill provide us with the resources to remember the well-being of our people and the world in which we live in these ceremonies years of human routine are severely interrupted right like years of living the way we've lived to just go out and have this this prayer this fasting no food or water you know for days at a time of course that's that's pretty intense. And, and it's no surprise because just a couple pages earlier, you write, indigenous people intentionally get close to death, not from wanting to physically harm ourselves, but to liberate the flow of our lives from certain heavy energies that create stagnation, illness, and oblivion. No, I would imagine people listening to this, if they're like me, they hear that and they simultaneously want it, but they're afraid of it. They're like, you know, I, yeah, I would love to do that. But A, I have all these responsibilities. I've got a job. I've got kids. I've got a mortgage. You know, I couldn't possibly go off. And, and B, is it safe? Like I might die, right? It's, you can't go four days with no water. That's, that's crazy, you know? 
that kind of thing. But what's your experience with finding people or rather people finding you? Because I would imagine that people who are in intense pain, I mean, as we know, many people are addicted to substances, to unhealthy practices, whether it's work or shopping or something else, or they're just outright killing themselves, committing suicide. And, and I, I understand that some people find you as an as an alternative to you know those, hopefully. They don't know what else to do, but they make their way to Arawaka or they somehow cross paths with you in search of healing. What's your experience with someone like that who wants to participate in in a transformational experience like a vision quest? Yeah, well, you mentioned a few different things that I would like to address. Uh, the first one is, uh, please, if you're here in this interview, don't go do things like that on your own. It, it can be dangerous. I know of people, young people who said, oh, I'm going to do a vision quest, and they went up to a mountain by themselves without any guidance or any container or knowledge of how to do it, and that was the end for them. Mm. You know, so, so it is dangerous if it's not done under the experience and wisdom of traditions of doing that that go back thousands of years where there is a way to do it that is safe and there is a way to do it that can be pretty unsafe. So uh, that I really wanted to say before I say more. No, thank you. Is, uh, you, you know, you mentioned uh, that people do these things because they feel something is missing. And, you know, I always say, when, when you feel that something is missing, most probably, you know, you know what is missing is you. <laughs> really, like, it's you. Nothing wow. else. It's just you. You know, so... That just kind of makes it worse in some way, though, Arkan. It's like, because then when you're the thing that's missing, how do you possibly find yourself when you're the one having the sense that something's missing? Yeah. Uh, you you, uh, you are saying it yourself. You, uh, you create a time and a space to, uh, to get rid of the distractions, you know, and... Uh, and make yourself available to feel yourself, to feel the deepest part of yourself. And it takes time. When I do Vision Quest, the first day is so ridiculous. It's so, oh man, it's just listening to a, a broken record, you know? It's, it's my, my thoughts, my mental activity that by inertia keeps going <laughs> even though I have nothing to do my mind is so busy thinking about the same things family, work my past and this and that you know and then suddenly all that activity starts diminishing diminishing, diminishing, diminishing and suddenly there's there is some silence there is uh, you know and and then I'm just really there with myself. And then I start feeling things. I start feeling uh, and perceiving from my real self. You know, from my real self, I can perceive the spirit of a tree. And it's an extraordinary experience, you know, to, to be connected to my real self, be who I really am, 
my, from my spirit, my essence, and connect to the essence of a tree that is in front of me on the hill. You have, I mean, there is no way to describe what that is, you know. I, I can't define it, but it's an extraordinary experience, you know. So the, the, the real me is always there. It's just that I'm not listening to it. I'm not paying attention to it. And when I say the one missing is, 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 is me, is that it doesn't mean it's not there, you know. It's like imagine you have your partner or your friend right next to you, you know, but you are so distracted that you are not paying attention to that one. And suddenly you realize, oh, I'm missing my friend. And you turn around <laughs> and it's right there. Yeah. You know, but why were you missing it? Because you were not paying attention. You were so distracted, so in your head, so, you know, you know, self-absorbed that it was right there next to you and you were not paying attention. Actually, I can say thanks to your question, Brian, really good question. You know, everything starts with the feeling of missing it. Mm. You know, maybe it is a real self who gives us that feeling, you know, but that feeling is the beginning of the path and going back to the path. And we have to go back to the path a million times, many times a day. Every time I feel I'm missing myself, I'm about to get myself back. When I don't feel nothing, when I don't remember that I'm missing myself, that's when I'm totally lost. You see, so it's really good to hang out with people, go to places, go to ceremonies or meetings or conversations where that can help us remember that we are missing ourselves. The moment we remember that, we're one step away, you know? And if we realize, yeah, I, I get myself back, I remember myself, but I can only keep myself in my awareness for a minute, maybe five. The, mean, the meeting is over, the conversation is over, and I go back to my old habits and I lose myself again. Well, that's when you can make the decision to do something stronger. You know, really go look for someone that can help you have a more, many days, you know, a more intense experience. Uh, am I asking people to come to me? No, not, not really, because I can't. <laughs> you know, how many people, how many vision quests can I lead in a year? Just one. Really, when the time is right and there is a time to do our ceremonies, how many people can I put on vision questing one time? You know, I I promised that I was never would put more than 20, and, I'm, and now I'm putting 30, 32. I need to know each one. I need to take care of the lives of each one. I need to make sure that each one learns what they need to learn really well, and I need to be able to pray with them before they go on the healing, when they come back. I cannot do that with more than 30 people. Hmm. What we need is more people that can help people go on the hill. And we are trying. We are trying. Because, you know, my father, some of my relatives, myself, we are looking always for the people who learn well 
and who then become capable of doing the same we do. That's how it spreads, you know? Like the example I gave you of the tree that has seeds that go to other places to make other trees. But if everyone goes to only one place and you have hundreds of people in one ceremonial location, you know, again, there may be teachers and ceremonial leaders that can make that work and I admire them. I don't know how to do that. You know, I like to uh, really know each person that I am working with and I feel responsible, you know, I feel responsible for their, not only for their lives, but for them really learning well. And, and in order for them to learn well, they, I have to have an intimate connection with them. I have to become close to them, yeah. you know, and I cannot become close to huge amounts to, of individuals, only a few. And my understanding is your request for those who do participate is that it's actually a five-year commitment because it's before you come and just participate as a vision quester, you actually support others who are doing it as a volunteer. And then you come back yourself four consecutive years for more than four days at a time, even though it's four days without food and water, fasting and and praying and being awake, that the commitment is actually bigger than just the four days or the one time. Yeah, I I just want to add, I don't know if I told you this, but after after the five years, there can be five more or ten more, depends on you, because there are people that are, that we are, we are a family that has grown throughout the years. And, you know, many, not all of them, because it's a personal decision, but many of the people who did four years of Vision Quest, then they kept coming. You know, at least one year they have to come back to do what we call a wopila, which is a thank you ceremony, hmm. to give thanks for all that was received for the four years. So that makes six. <laughs> After that, some of the people, they want, I, I say, hey, I need help. I cannot put 30 people on, on the hill by myself. It's a lot of work. I, you know, some of you, please come back and help. And some people come back and keep helping for 5, 10, 15 more years. Wow. Like that, you know? Amazing. So there are people in our ceremonial community coming here for 20 years. And those are the people who are the new trees. That carry that you know they really the seed went deep inside, and those people now, you know, run sweat lodges or do things like that. Of course, it's very delicate to pass an indigenous way of prayer to someone who didn't grow up in an indigenous culture. And you know, I respect the indigenous people that do, do not want to do that or do not agree. But there are some indigenous elders and leaders who say that actually we need to do that. We need to teach our ways. But some of us who do that, we do it in a very, very responsible way. I only share the way of doing some ceremony or a sweat lodge or something with someone who didn't grow up in an indigenous nation if they prove themselves throughout many, many, many years of work and have full respect for the traditions and the way we do things, you know. Mm. So uh, for those of, of, of the people who want to learn these ways from indigenous people, le- let me say something that may sound funny, 
but you know, and you can take it any way you want, uh, as a joke or as a serious thing. <laughs> I say Thanksgiving. You know, next Thanksgiving, November next year. Instead of you know doing a big Thanksgiving celebration at home and spend money in a lot of food, go to uh, an indigenous reservation and give thanks to the indigenous people for keeping alive the ancient memory of what it is to be a human being and the connection to the earth through culture, prayer, ceremony that keep alive the connection between humans and the earth. You know, in our culture, when we want something, it all starts with giving a gift, you know, to to ask for any favor or any guidance. The first thing we do is offer tobacco or give a gift and, and say, you know, here, this is for you because I, I may ask for your help, you know, like that, you know, and uh, and then build a relationship, keep your antennas sharp, and see who may be able to help you. By the way, I 100% believe that the one who runs all this is the Earth herself hmm. and the spiritual guides of humanity. So when someone is ready, the teacher comes, you know, that's really true. Yeah. So. You know, it's not about like going everywhere seeking for a teacher or doing things like that. Just, you know, have the intention. I, I'm ready. I really need to do this. One thing leads to another, and then you end up, you know, knowing someone who knows someone who says, yeah, there is, you know, these people in Arizona or in South Dakota or here and there, you know, and go visit them, bring them a gift. And humbly, once you have earned their trust, ask for help, you know? But there is a lot of, uh, you know, it's a damaged relationship that needs to be repaired. You know, the, let's be aware that the people who carry the wisdom in the containers for doing these practices in a safe way, and actually in a way that really works, where you don't waste four days on the mountain, but you really receive the help that you need. The people who hold the memory of humanity, this memory belongs to humanity, of how human beings develop these relationships, these profound relationships with themselves and the sacred powers of nature and the spirit world are people that belong to cultures that have been conquered and damaged in many ways, you know? So, you know, that, that also has to be addressed, you know? It is, it is part of it. Is, you know, we, that cannot be ignored. There is a, an asking for help to people that, whose lands were stolen, whose ways were uh, made wrong, and were people who were colonized. So how do we approach that? You know, how do we go to someone like that, you know, in, in a respectful manner, uh, willing to even have that conversation, you know? No. Like, you know, and, and say, hey, you know, 
how, how do we do this in a, in a humble way, you know? Yeah, I, I would imagine however we do it, there's some humility involved, <laughs> you know? Yes, absolutely. And my my father, my adopted father, Basil Braveheart, he's a Oglala Lakota medicine man of, from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. You know, he has done and he still does a lot of work around forgiveness. He, he says publicly that, you know, and you may find, you know, he has some, he has done some of what I'm doing now with immense wisdom, and he speaks about the importance of forgiveness, the healing power of forgiveness, you know, how, uh, how healing it is to ask for forgiveness, and how healing it is to be asked to forgive. You know, and, and, you know, the way he explains it and, and what he has found about that is very, very, very profound. You know, so the sharing of our traditions and the sharing of the way we do our ceremonies with, uh, with people of the world is very, very delicate. Yeah. You know, I'm always consulting. You know, I, actually this year I'm, I have invited some indigenous leaders for a gathering so we can have a council around it. I need to ask the question, you know, I, I'm learning. How do we share our ways, you know, in a way that there is no cultural appropriation, we don't lose the treasures of our ancestors, or they are not taken from us and misused or used for the wrong purposes. And at the same time, we do forgive and we do participate in the healing of the world by giving some of our ancient wisdom to people that are sincere and need that wisdom for their work, yeah. a work that will benefit all of humanity by healing the, the earth, all that damage done to the earth, and by also you know, bring, bringing wisdom, wisdom into our, all the, of the institutions that run the world, scientific, educational, government, and everywhere. You know, so it is a very delicate subject that, you know, it's, it's kind of new, you know, that yeah. some indigenous people are are sharing uh, and, uh, you know, mistakes are being made for sure. But there are also some really good benefits to it, you know, some really good people learning and using what they are learning in a good way. So this is, you know... It's a big conversation happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when you, Brian, asked this question, and you even put it out there for other people to ask about how to uh, benefit from these ancient traditions, I have to say these things. You know, they are yeah. right in the middle of it. Thank you for sharing that. And also, even more, thank you for, for doing that, being in that middle place of you know, serving as an intermediary or a liaison of, of a kind between, you know, a bridge between the traditions of uh, ancient wisdom and, and the healing for our modern world. Uh, I think there's many, many people who are, who are looking for this and many more who stand to benefit from it. What, in your opinion, what's the most important quality for a spiritual teacher? Humility, number one. No, nothing else works without that one. I totally, I totally could have guessed that <laughs> from what you said earlier. That's, that's great. Okay. 
let me just wrap up, begin to wrap up by saying thank you. And, and one way that I have endeavored to express my gratitude to you for sharing your time and your knowledge and your experience, your wisdom really, is I have made uh, what's called a micro loan to an entrepreneur in a developing in Peru actually. I've I've gone on to kiva.org, which is a website I, I like to use to try to share my blessings with people around the world. And I've uh, loaned a hundred dollars to a woman named Leah who lives in San Antonio Huabal. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but this she'll use this money to help buy fertilizer and to prune her coffee plantation. So that's just one way that I have uh, wanted to show my my thanks to you for t- for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much. That's that's be- it's beautiful to hear that. And I, I want to tell you something, Brian. Uh, I have uh, I have had a few interviews throughout my life. Uh, not many, you know, maybe ten, fifteen. Uh-huh. And uh, your the way you do it is excellent. It's. Uh, I don't know how you do it, but you the way you keep track of the most important uh, elements of the interview, the way you come back to things that were said before that are really important, the way you right away know to what part of my book not go, you have to go to in order to support something that we are talking about. Uh, amazing, really. I mean, you're very very good at doing this. So congratulations. Well, thank you. I, I, I couldn't do it without you, Arkin. <laughs> you make it all possible. Yeah. I just want to tell you something that you, you could hear in the interview and maybe we can use for our next interview. There was something really precious that could have had a little bit more of development when, when you asked me about one of the most powerful questions I felt you asked me was about building a culture that is not aggressive. Yes. Yeah. But a culture of sharing. And I and I was telling you that there is an example of that. And, you know, I have some knowledge of how the Caral people did it without mm. weapons. Hmm. You know, yeah. they influenced a lot of people in the Andean world without weapons. They spread their culture, actually, by sharing and by becoming attractive to other people that wanted to learn. Yeah. And, and also, I know a lot about how the Inca did it, but the Inca did it out of a state of emergency. There was war, you know, so the, the memory of this is, in my opinion, is, it belongs to the memory of humanity because these were human beings. They were not from another species. And what they accomplished, what they did in those times, is extraordinary. And I really think that it could be a reference for all those of us in the modern world trying to build a new culture. Because this this new culture may look a lot like what those people did thousands of years ago. Yeah, I I think you're right. And and I think that that's definitely something I want to explore because there was something I wanted to ask about that's related to that is your sentence in um, the time of the Black Jaguar, the whole economic system needs to become natural, ecological, and sacred. And and so I think those two things would be a great a great place to pick up. So I would love to do that. Okay, excellent. Again, saying thank you, Arkan, and, and thank you to everyone who has listened. I hope that you've taken away many, many things that will deepen and develop in you, go far beyond 
the level of mind, but as Arkan said, to truly embody the teaching, some of the ideas here, explore them in yourselves, find yourself if you have the sense that something's missing, and ultimately infuse it into your heart, mind, body, spirit, and live it as the truest expression of who you are. So with that, take care, and till next time, we'll resume part two with Arkin. Lushwala. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.